0: And uh, we're going to, for the adult class we're going to need a Bible and a hymnal. So if you grab a hymnal and turn to page 848 because we're going to Lord Winley really wrap up chapter one of uh, the confession as we, alongside our series on Psalm 119, we have been looking at uh, the most systematic way, what the whole Bible teaches about itself. And that's really the first chapter of our confession, which makes sense since everything else, is based on that. We have looked through to paragraph 5 of chapter 1, so hopefully we're going to finish it today starting at paragraph 6. And uh, we're going to read it together. I mean, I'll read it loud and follow along and then try to explain each section there. All right, so on page 848, you find that paragraph 6 is the VI one, if you're... Uh, wondering which one uh, that is. It reads this way The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new, new revelations or of the spirit or a tradition of man. this particular paragraph this particular section of the sixth paragraph is talking about the sufficiency of the scriptures it tells us here that the scripture is sufficient for uh, all things necessary for his own glory man's salvation faith and life so these are the things that the scriptures are sufficient for whatever it is that we're to believe, how we are to live, uh, and so on. And, and the scriptures do teach that about themselves. For example, in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, the Holy Spirit, through the apostle Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us, and that next clause is very important, has given to us. All things that pertain to life and godliness. So the Spirit has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to how to live and what to believe. believe. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy, it's a very familiar passage, where it says, All scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped, and this is the last clause, for every good work, for everything that God calls us to do. That's what good works are, what God calls us to do in life. So the word of God is sufficient to equip the men of God for every good work that God calls his or her, him or her to do. There's no need for something from outside of the scriptures to get for us to figure that out. And the sufficiency of the Scriptures is really the biggest issue of our day in the Church of Jesus Christ, in the Protestant Church. Uh, the bar- the, the early on, in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, and then the mid-1900s, there was a big battle for the inerrancy of the Scriptures, the, a fight for the perfection of the Word. The, inerrancy te- uh, the doctrine of inerrancy teaches there's no errors in the Bible. And that was, in the, at least in the Protestant Church in general, in the Bible, in Protestant Church, has, that has been... That battle has been won. Now, a more dangerous view of the Bible is present in the church. And that is the view that the Bible is not enough. Sure, it's good enough to get you saved. But everything else, you need you need some other wisdom for you to, to live that because the scriptures are not sufficient. A few years ago, a couple came from another church in town for counseling and they had gone to their own pastor with marital issues. Not, it, they weren't complicated marital issues either. And the pastor said that they couldn't, he couldn't help them because the Bible didn't say anything about the particular marital issue that they were facing. They didn't think that that was, that didn't click with them. So they came and we look at the scriptures and the scriptures addressed clearly what they were struggling and, and uh, they were able to see that. So, but in the Church of Jesus Christ, there is now this idea that the Bible is not sufficient anymore. That uh, even though for, you know, 1900 years, it was sufficient for the Church, for the modern men, we need to find some other wisdom that comes from outside the Scriptures to learn how to live, to learn how to parent our kids, to learn how to be a husband and wife, to learn how to obey God, to learn how to rejoice in Him, because somehow the Bible is not sufficient, and even, the, and even worse, a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who claim to be born-again Christians really don't view the Bible as relevant. Yeah, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but I, it's not relevant to my situation because my situation is unique. It's different than everybody else. The interesting thing is the Bible says that... Uh, No temptation, no struggle, no trial has overtaken you except what's common to men, what's human, what's what's there among men, and that the Bible addresses that. So the sufficiency of the Scriptures, the Bible is sufficient for everything concerning what we're to believe and everything concerning what we're to do in this life. Any questions of that? All right, so paragraph six continues, and it says, nevertheless... We acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So the Bible is sufficient, everything we need is there, and yet we need the Spirit to be working in us for us to understand what the Bible says. So that's the idea of that the apart from the Holy Spirit, the Bible cannot be properly understood unto salvation. Unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, we will not understand what he's saying concerning salvation. That's not the same thing as saying that an unbeliever cannot um, come up and explain correctly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6, whatever, you can pick any chapter, is that he won't believe that. You won't see as being true apart from the work of the Spirit. And Paul says that in a couple of places in Second Corinthians, he says that the Jews, when they read Moses, their eyes are veiled. And the difference is that when we read Moses, our eyes are unveiled, and because of that, we are being transformed, the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. In second in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and through 12, perhaps a more familiar passage, which says that. The apart from the Spirit of God, the natural man cannot understand the things of God because it's the Spirit of God that reveals to, shows to the natural man um, what God is saying. So apart from the Holy Spirit, the Bible cannot be properly understood unto salvation. Any questions on that? All right. Chapter 6 continues, or chapter 6, paragraph 6 continues and says, And there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rule, rules of the word which are always to be observed. The Bible is sufficient and yet it leaves room for the government of the church, the government that Christ appointed to make some decisions that are just based on prudence. So there's room for prudence and common sense in the church. Now, the worship of God is to be determined by the Word. We believe in what's called the regulative principle of worship. That is, the Scriptures regulate worship. So we're not going to do something in worship that the Bible doesn't command us to do. We sing because the Bible commands us to do. We preach because the Bible commands us to do. We read because the Bible commands us to do. We pray. We give. We, we hear. We Eat and we bless because the Bible commands us to do that. those things in worship. We don't add to what the scriptures um, command us. So that's why we don't do drama. During, there's no little skit during worship uh, and, and so on because that's not commanded in the scriptures. But there, the Bible doesn't get a, give us every single detail. Can you think of a detail of worship? that's left for the prudence of the government of the church? Sonia? Which songs to sing? Yes. What else? Lois? The, in some ways, the order, though you try to follow some the, theologically what's there, but yeah. Chris? What instruments to use? Okay, yes. Tilly? Sitting in pews, all right? Having yeah. lights on. <laughs> Having lights on, yes, okay. All right. Uh, yes, one that's major is what time? 11 o'clock versus 10 o'clock versus 2 o'clock versus 4 in the morning, right? Uh, that's left to the government of the church. The Bible doesn't. But notice the confession says there that once that's decided, that's, that's what we we're going to do well. The, the Bible doesn't tell me that worship should be at eleven, so I'm going to show up at two, even though the elders say we're going to gather at eleven. Now that's rebellion. You know, that that's contrary to what Hebrews 13:17 says, and you're obeying the elders and so on. But you know, there is no god more. Sunrise services are not more godly than eleven o'clock services, right? So we need to keep that in mind. Uh, that's left for the church. How many songs to sing, um, you know, color of hymnals and, and that color of copper, those things are left to prudence and common sense. Any questions on that? Andrew? I uh,
1: Just to solidify something you're saying, for each one of those things, though, there are more consistent and less consistent ways with the principles of the scriptures that are to say pretty much. Everything we're going to be
0: deciding on? No, everything in this section means that you can do righteously in completely different ways. Right? So you can righteously worship at 11, you can righteously worship at 2. Right?
1: But could we, do you think it's fair to say that there would be an argument? So let's say there's a church that's doing only evening worship at 5 o'clock. I think I would want to make an argument for a consistency of doing something earlier in the day, but maybe not quite to the point of binding that
0: other church's conscience. I don't understand the consistency. Or why is that consistent? Consistent with what?
1: Consistent with general scriptural. Pride. So that would be like, I guess, an argument about the uh, Sabbath day. And mm-hmm. if a church was only having an evening service, like so, so if you decided that you wanted to say, you know, let's do away with having worship in the morning, let's only have worship. There are
0: biblical principles on which we are. Not with the time itself, but for the reasoning. For
1: the reasoning.
0: Not, not with the time. I, I think the time is somewhat irrelevant, but the reasoning why you're changing okay, that, so that. If
1: you're doing it because we
0: wanted to sleep in, yes, that would be. It could. There's nothing ungodly about sleeping in. <laughs> 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 well, I, I should beg that. There's nothing necessarily ungodly about uh, sleeping. <laughs> In. Or, well, it's football season, so now we're going to do uh, you know work, the service only at halftime. So the reasoning for why. But the time itself, I, it, I don't see how that can be. Unless it excludes some
1: people from being able to attend worship. For example, some people with health conditions or elderly have trouble later in the day,
0: may not be able to drive once it's dark. Maybe. Maybe. The Lord's Day is the Lord's Day. So any time in it is time for corporate worship, right? right but so if I when it's then we we'll figure out somebody a way to get that person here, right? Well, except that doesn't always happen. <laughs> but so because it people fail doesn't mean that's not what we should be doing, right?
1: But but choosing a time that's more inclusive
0: seems to be more in line with the yeah. Body. Convenience is not necessarily the ultimate reason why we should do things as a church, right? Um, so, if if the session thought it would be wise and good for the church to have an evening service, then we should have an evening service. And if people struggle to drive at night, let's start to figure out ways how to get them here at that that point. So. Yeah. Because then, it, well, there are some people that, you know, 10 o'clock, their bones are still hurting too much. They definitely, definitely have you know, fibromyalgia or whatever, or some sort of joint, and, and it, really they can't really move well till noon. And then you start doing that, there's not going to be any time of the day that really is convenient for everybody. So... You just do it, and then uh, and then work hard at uh, helping people to to be here. So yeah. Anything? yes, Katie. I don't want to sidetrack too much, but that's, that's okay. okay. We're already there. Oh, okay. <laughs> looking back to history, the morning time of worship. At what point did it change from like an all-day worship service to our American way of? It was never an all-day worship service. It wasn't. mm mm no, no point in history. Uh, it was an all-day worship service. Yes, morning and evening has yes. been, a, and you know, at first, you know, he had a reason. You know, a lot of slaves were Christians. It was an underground religion, so they had to do out of the way of people. So early in the morning, and at the end of the day, would be out of way. But it's never been a whole day. Yeah. There's a few examples in the Old Testament, but they are memorable because they are exceptions. Does it make sense? Okay. Clearly. The second part of the, um, this paragraph is specific to the worship of God and governance of the church. Mm-hmm. It talks about critics and common sense the Correct. Birth. Right. Then it, it seems like it makes a distinction that prudence and common sense is just applicable for worship No, if you look at um, earlier on, it says that uh, log, uh, log, logic, things logically deduced are also binding, right? But it does recognize the fact that the scriptures do, do leave room, especially for worship, because that's the context that the divines are writing the... The, the confession, right? They're trying to purify the worship of the Church of England. that there are things that are left for the government of the church to decide. Anything else? We're going to move to, par- to paragraph 7. And paragraph 7 is dealing with the perspic- perspicuity of the Scriptures. Now, it's a complicated way to say that the Gospel is, un- is understandable uh, can be understood by even the simplest of person, so they choose a complicated word to describe the doctrine that teaches that the gospel can be understood by the simplest of people in, ver- in paragraph one of oh, in paragraph seven the first part, it says, All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all.' So he recognizes that there is complicated things in the Bible. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So uh, you don't have to be... They have a high IQ, you don't, you don't... As a matter of fact, another part of the confession says that uh, the, the mentally retarded, and, and this is not a... Anyway, the mentally retarded can understand the gospel by the work of the Spirit, uh, and so on. So uh, the gospel is simple enough that as the Spirit opens the eyes of the person, they're able to understand uh, the Word. So it's perspicuous. It can be understood through the ordinary means, uh, preaching, reading the Word, and so on. And that's a guidance for preaching. that The preacher should never make the gospel complicated. More complicated than what the Bible does. Because the ordinary means, preaching, is the means that God has appointed for people to come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any questions on that? Can you think of passages in the Bible that teaches that the gospel is not complicated?
1: Thanks for asking. So, yeah. 130, the unfolding of your words gives light, making wise the simple. Yes.
0: The unfolding of your word gives light, light making wise the simple. What else? Any other passage you can think? Vanita yeah. is following her, her remarks. <laughs> Let, let's go to Lois, and then we'll come back to you. Go ahead, Lois. <laughs> I don't know the psalm, but um, the word is a light unto my path. Psalm 119, 105. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, Okay. Let me throw a one that actually the word gospel is used in it. Think of first, 2 Timothy 3.15. And that from childhood, even on the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Timothy, as a little child, could understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? So you can see that, that even a child... Can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are portions that are complicated. Danita, can you think of passages that say that the Bible can be complicated? Okay, go ahead. Give me one more of the simple.
1: Psalm 19. Yeah. The law of the Lord is perfect,
0: reminding
1: the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple.
0: Yes. Now, how about passages, not, not passages that are complicated, but passages that say that there are complicated passages? In the Bible. Jerry. Paul talks about baptizing for the dead. Okay, so that's a complicated passage. It's not a passage that says that there are complicated passages. Nick. I
1: can't remember the exact reference, but Peter talks about some of Paul's writings are difficult to
0: understand. Hmm, look at that. In In 2 Peter 3.16, that Paul there, Peter says as also in all his, that is Paul's epistles, speaking them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And every time I read this, I, I feel like Paul, Peter's giving a little dig on Paul's. His stuff is hard to understand. Uh, not like mine. His stuff is hard to But here he says that there are complicated things in the writings of Paul that takes a little more work to understand. There he is. It says, which untaught and unstable people yeah. twisted it. So that means that we should be very taught and we should... Correct. Be, yeah, we should be stable. The ones who teach. Yeah. The ones who... Yeah. And we should be learned. Right? right? Yes. Any other thoughts on this? Sonia? God. Deuteronomy 29.29. Yeah, so the Bible is given for us to understand and to use and and so on. Okay, so we're going to move to paragraph 8. It says this. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, Okay, what does the word immediately use? We, we tend to think of immediately as right away. But in theology, that, that's not what immediate means.
1: Direct connection?
0: Directly, yes. Without mediate, without mediator. Without means. is Immediately. The I the, the negates what follows. Okay? So being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages... Are therefore authentical, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to, approve unto, to appeal unto them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I already looked at in the first few paragraphs regarding the inspiration of the scriptures, but it's not the English that inspired, it's not the Portuguese that inspired, Is the original manuscripts in Greek and Hebrew that were inspired, but not only inspired, they were also preserved for us today so that we can be confident that what we have today is what we. That's what the apostles and the Old Testament prophets and so on wrote down. We can have confidence in that. Now, if you notice that, the end says, so in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. Them here, the antecedent of them is the text in Hebrew and Greek, and um, the confession that the divines fail to include Aramaic, because there are portions of the Old Testament that are also... In Aramaic, there are portions in Daniel, there are portions in, in, in the book of Chronicles, there are portions in Ezra that are in Aramaic as well. But that last clause, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them, to the original languages, is one of the reasons why leaders in the church should know them, should know those languages. That's why in our denomination we require all our pastors to be able to use Greek and Hebrew in um, their everyday work because ultimately that's what we're going to appeal in matters of controversy in the church any questions or comments on that sometimes I go like this it's because I'm saying Scott this one is for the rest of the people uh, and then sometimes I say okay Scott answer because he has all the answers there in the back and so <laughs> so I'm not upset anybody I'm just saying not this one that's what I'm saying, saying there All right. And then moving to to the second part of paragraph eight, it says, but because these original tongues are not known to all that the people of God who have right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commended in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come That the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So, the Bible should be translated into the common language. Vulgar here doesn't mean let's put a bunch of cuss words in it, it means just the common language of the people. So, Westminster people, elders and pastors who subscribe to the confession, should be proponents of modern translations. Uh, that the common language of the people, uh, the, the the Holy Spirit used common Greek for a while. So, if there's a particular lexicon called Thayer's Thayer's uh, lexicon of Greek of Greek New Testament, and it was produced in the second half of the 1800s, so 19th century, and in the back of that lexicon, you have a whole section of what he called Holy Spirit Greek. And the reason why he called that is because those words in Greek were only found in the Bible and nowhere else. So they said, okay, the Holy Spirit using some convoluted special language. And then they found a bunch of papyri in the Nile Delta in Egypt. The, uh, 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 either you can say Elephantine papyri Elephantine papyri. And they found out a bunch of just everyday little notes and papyri, or, or or personal letters, or a bill that a, a, a receipt that a salesperson would write to somebody else. And most of those Holy Spirit words were in that, because the reason that he couldn't find in in Plato, Aristotle, or or uh, other other Greek writers of the time is because they were so common that the educated writers wouldn't use that language. And that's what became known as the Koine Greek, or the common Greek of the people. So that makes sense, then, that the the Bible be translated into language, not to dumb it down, but to keep it current to the language that's being spoken. We see that being done by Ezra. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah invites Ezra to preach. So, Katie, that's one example, one of the few examples of a whole day worship service. He preaches for eight hours. Okay? So, just think about it. We'd go for 35 minutes usually here in the morning. This was an eight-hour service. And he read from Hebrew. And then he had Levites all, all over the place translating to Aramaic, so the people can understand, because by that time, after they came back from the Babylonian exile, most of the people did not speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke Aramaic. And then explaining the, the text to them. So right there, we have a sanctioning of translations. And the New Testament authors often quoted from, not necessarily directly from the Hebrew text, but from a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, that started being translated 250 before Christ. So you can see there are validation for translations. Any questions on that? Heather?
1: So in our modern translations,
0: does it really matter what translation we're using? Yes, burn the NIV. No, I'm (laughs) just (laughs) joking. I just knew that that's the one she uses. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) In the past, I told her, use a Mickey Mouse translation. Uh, It does matter it does matter because the philosophy of translation will affect what you actually have now I'm not against paraphrases paraphrases can be um, helpful for example a while ago when it first came out it was called the living paraphrase and it stated clearly it was a paraphrase and it's like a commentary you know, it helps you understand a few things and so on and but as a paraphrase it's not really the Word of God now they call the Living Bible, and they sell it as a translation then there's uh, there 's a problem with that because it 's not a translation it 's not faithful to the text that 's behind it, so the philosophy of translation is very important as well, and it can go if it is a translation i 'm just putting paraphrase out so living Bible, the new living translation, which is a misnomer it 's not a translation others but, but in the Bibles that call themselves translations and they sh- the have some claim to that. You can go from on the left is always bad, right? So from the seems like that's usually we do we do things from this side where they they attempt to do a, what's called a dynamic translation, where they're more interested in translating the thoughts of the original author than necessarily the very words to uh, a interlinear. Have you ever seen an interlinear where you have the the original text, Hebrew or Greek, and then they have little English words under it, and it's almost impossible to make sense of it because the order is not uh, uh, quite right and so on. So those are the two extremes. So the NIV is over here on an attempt to do um, thought translation. The problem with that is that often it's very difficult to figure out what the thought was because, in essence, you're trying to figure out intention. And you end up not with a translation, but we end up with what? Interpretation. An interpretation. Right? On the other hand, over here, you, we do want something that we can read and make sense of it, right? So, um, you know, the New American Standard is uh, one that's very, very wooden, very, they try as much as possible not to change the order of words. So, you, you have... Uh, uh, in Hebrew, you usually have verb subject instead of subject verb as we have in English, right? So it's say, like, I love. That's English. Hebrew often is love, I. So the, whatever. So the subject follows, and the NASB tries to keep the same structure and so on, and that can be a little difficult. But the biggest, my biggest biggest knock on the NASB is that they keep they in prayers, in prayers only. They keep thys and these and thous. As if the original language used a different sort of language for prayers, which it doesn't. It's the very same language as a conversation between two people, as a conversation between a person and God. So, because of that, I'm not super fan. Um, you have know others. The New King James is, is on, this, on the good side, the ESV is on, on the good side. The, the New King James and the ESV have very, very similar translational philosophy. So uh, there are the, the King James over here, but then the King James start getting into the vulgar, the common. It's not the common language of the people anymore and, and so on. But yes, so just a brief Heather explanation there. Yes. I have one
1: more question about that, about the, the intent of the passage. Mm-hmm. Some intent that has to be translated yes. because yes. It's not a direct across meaning.
0: But there's a difference when you do it when you have to and start with the presupposition that you're going to do all the time.
1: So how do we know I mean how would that like that? someone yeah. new to the faith gets on Amazon to get a Bible how would they know
0: that? They should be in the church that can tell them <laughs> they help them out. Not tell them but help them out. With that, And even then, Heather, we're not trying to figure out intention, we're trying to figure out language, mm-hmm. right? There are, there, are, there are figures of speech that don't translate well, right? But again, we're not trying to... The way to figure out how to translate that into English in a way that makes sense is not by trying to figure out what the author had in his mind, but how that figure of speech was used in the first century, or if it's in Hebrew, how it was used in, 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 in you know okay. yeah. other Hebrew... Writings, Because as we're going to see next, when we get in just a second, oh, sorry, the, the scripture should be interpreted by scripture. That's what so the analogy of faith is. So when you have this expression here, we're going to try to see how is this used so we can understand what the expression is and figure out what the best expression is in English for that. Does it make sense?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I'm trying to figure out, think of an English saying that makes no sense in other languages uh, but if you speak a second language you understand that that there, there are things sometimes cannot go one to one but you don't make up stuff you try to understand how that this expression works in this language and choose an expression that means equivalent an equivalent way in the other language so I, I don't want to take a sound hole, but I have a brain. this is this whole lesson you know <laughs> okay. I had this pipe dream would finish chapter one today but hey no it's okay <laughs> I'm wondering is it
1: possible difference from camel and that possibly that was a translation
0: error? So the problem with that is that the expression wasn't set in Hebrew. The only record we have it is in Greek. The inspired text is in well, Greek. Greek then. Yeah, so, and there's no, there's no such thing. It's, it's, it's camel. What people argue is what the needle is more than what the camel is. Uh, you know, is, is, is Jesus referring to a particular gate in Jerusalem that was called the needle gate because it was narrow, and it was very difficult for a camel to go in. And you had to work for him to go in, or, or do you actually mean the eye of a needle, as we think of the place where the thread goes, which is not a translational thing; is a interpretation thing. So just if, if that was a valid example, mm-hmm. is it possible that those kinds of errors exist in translation? In translation, yes, but what, what if this person's arguing what you're saying? they're saying there's a mistake in the Bible, because it's not a translational issue. They're saying, oh, they, they wrote it this wrong in the original. And so that is not what we're talking about. That's a challenge to the inerrancy of the scriptures. Does it make sense? Yeah. All right, Katie. That's job security. Because sometimes I hear like, you're like a, a
1: sermon and you know they're standing on this word and it has six different meanings in Greek and and it really helps understand helps me understand what the state said, but so that doesn't
0: always happen when I read scripture. Yeah. Um, I think yes. But it wouldn't be the first thing in my in my list. You know, be very familiar with a good good translation it would be more important, I think, for the layperson than not doing that for the sake of studying Greek and Hebrew. So there's a priority uh, here that I would... I, would. I, I love languages, and I think everybody, it would be good for everybody to learn. And It's not as complicated as people make it think, make it sound, but I think it, it falls under, you know... Third, fourth, maybe fifth, sixth in the list of priority concerning studying the Bible. Andrew?
1: Um, I know some proponents of the King James who aren't necessarily King James onlyists, but they they say the King James was written in elevated language even at its time, and we should use the King James to help us raise the standard of our
0: of our English. Yeah.
1: Is that position contrary?
0: I think so. For example, Caleb's daughter comes to talk to him, and the King James says that she came before him and lighted off her ass. What does that mean today? (laughs) And is today an elevation of language? No, it's right, you know, it's not that. Uh, uh, And... uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the King James says that the quick shall not prevent the dead. Um, and so, you know, if you have up in the church and, being, and you, you may have used some older version, you might understand the quick as the living, but the word prevent completely changed its meaning in the last 400 years. Where in the King James, well, it's actually from 17, in the 1780s, the 1720s, the version that we use, that people use today, the King James prevent back then meant not go before. But you read that text, isn't that not? So it's not an elevation of language, uh, right? It is a complete, is a different language. Okay. Anything else? Now, at the same time, I'm not proposing uh, Ebonics either. That would be Ebonics translation to, you know, I think we, we have to be faithful to the text and whatever level the text is to translate at that level. And the Bible, uh, the Bible promotes literacy in the church because of the level of the language. And people need to be taught to read it. And so and that's why throughout history, everywhere Christianity went, literacy went up education became better so that people could read the Bible. Okay? All right. Uh, Let's see here. Um, In uh, in paragraph 9, it says this, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore, when there is a question about the true and false sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So that's what the analogy of the scripture is. is a term, I think, taken out of um, is either Augustine's or Origen's writings. And that teaches that we're supposed to compare this text with that text with that text. And the best way to interpret the scripture is by seeing what the rest of the scriptures say on that particular subject and so on. So uh, that's how we study the scriptures. And it's important that you notice here that it says that each passage has one Meaning, which is not manifold, but one, and so each passage of the Bible has one meaning. It may have m- multitude of applications, but it has one meaning, and that meaning is independent of you. Are we clear on that? It's not what it means to you. Is that a, what does it mean if I've ne- had never existed? <laughs> What is the meaning that's binding on everyone, everywhere, and every time, in every society, in every language, every culture? That's the meaning. Application, it may change where you go. And you may have many, many different applications from a particular text, depending on where we are in life, your age, whether you're married or not, where you live, and so on. But the meaning is one and one only. Any questions on that? Darius. And, and, and the church helps us, right? We have 2,000 years of people interpreting the Bible. We don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Uh, the uh, me and my Bible and Jesus is a very, uh, very prideful, if you think about it, you know, um, position, as if you're going to do a better job than anybody else has ever done. Okay. And as it, we grow in knowledge, right? We, we grow in, in knowledge, that, as we saw Wednesday night, truth is knowable. Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the, and the truth shall set you free. So truth is noble. So we can get complete knowledge on particular subjects. Okay? But it's only through the grace of God. Uh, yeah, as the Spirit works in us, but at the same time it's our duty to do it. And so we just do it. And if we do it, we, in hindsight we say, well, the Spirit enabled me to do that. Right. We don't wait for the Spirit to enable me before we do it, we just do it. Anything else on that? And then lastly, in, in paragraph ten, the Bible is the authority by which we judge all things. It says the Supreme Judge by whom all controversies of religion are to be determined, in all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of man, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other than but the Holy Spirit speaking through the scripture so you put every all of life and we measure it and you judge it and through the lens of the scriptures any questions on that that seems simple enough Okay. now my plan for now because we're going to have like 20 minutes left and we're going to what we're going to do with that time we don't we have two minutes left but we uh, there was a lot of questions about the canon of the scriptures and how it came about. So that's what we were going to do. Uh, But we are running out of time, so we're not going to talk about the canon of the scriptures and how they came about. We we did talk about, I don't know, three, four minutes in the previous lesson, but there were so many questions I thought would be good. So we'll do that at a future time uh, and talk about the canon. Any questions about the things that we've been talking about concerning the scriptures or comments? Chris? I forgot to.
1: You said before the
0: no, the ordinary means in the confession means the preaching of the word, the reading but especially the preaching of the word, prayer and the sacraments. Okay, so. so to use the ordinary means and those means that are unto salvation which is particularly the reading and the preaching of the word of God. Gotcha, right? The sacrament is not a salvific means. Anything else? All right, so let's pray. Father heaven, thank you that you're so good to us. And thank you for your word. We thank you that you review yourself to us in it. Thank you for the your spirit that has opened our eyes to see great things concerning you in it. Even as we move to worship uh, service, we pray that we would see glorious things in every element of worship this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.